Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. The first poem in Sean Singer's new collection of poetry, Today in the Taxi, begins with, Today in the taxi, I brought a man from Midtown to someplace in Astoria near the airport. From that ordinary beginning, the poems explore the many features of New York City, its people, its streets, its highways, and its neighborhoods, all delivered through the impressions of an Uber driver. Like Walt Whitman's poem Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, which turns a short boat ride into a meditation on life, death, and eternity, Sean's poetry starts in everyday experiences and grasps large realms of significance. Sean, a former Uber driver, holds an MFA from Washington University in St. Louis and a PhD in American Studies from Rutgers University, Newark, where I was proud to serve on his dissertation committee. He's the author of two other books of poetry, Discography, which won the Yale Series of Younger Poets Prize, and the Norma Faber First Book Award from the Poetry Society of America. He's also the author of Honey and Smoke, which the Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Yusuf Kumanyaka said was made of life's raw lyrical energy, where jazz becomes a spiritual compass. I'm Rob Snyder, Manhattan Borough Historian and Professor Emeritus of American Studies and Journalism at Rutgers University, Newark. We're here thanks to the New Books Network. Welcome, Sean. Thank you so much. Why did you become a poet? Why? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think uh, it's sort of a decision and sort of a situation where it chooses you because I was always drawing and writing little things. I didn't necessarily define them as poems, Um, but I was writing ever since I learned how to write, you know, my entire life. Um, My grandparents, there used to be an LP series called the Cadmon. They were like Cadmon poetry readings. John Mm -hmm. Thomas was one of them. And that for some reason um, made sense to me. And, uh, you know, I was just always writing and I started off like everyone else, not writing well, but, you know, 
I, I thought that I might become a journalist. Um, I was the editor of my high school newspaper and, um, but then I had the, uh, just the chance fortune of being in Yusef Kamenyaka's class, who you just mentioned. And he sort of was the first person to tell me that poetry was something that I should really take seriously and sort of devote my life to. So that's, that's what I decided to do. Then how did you come to drive for Uber? So, um, as you know, when I finished, um, my doctorate in 2013, you know, the job market since the financial crisis in 2008 was very precarious. And, um, you know, I had two young children and I really gave it a, a good amount of time to try to get an academic job or a research job. And I wasn't able to. So then Uber was invented and I thought, you know, I like driving. I know the city well, um, you know, and I thought that I would give it a try. I didn't know at that time that I was going to write a book. Um, I didn't even start writing the poems until about two or three years in, into it. Um, so yeah, then I, so, but then I stopped when the pandemic started because it was already unsafe and that made it, that was sort of like a bridge too far. I mean, a lot of us know how to drive, but what's it like to drive for Uber in New York city? Well, drive, driving a taxi is extremely dangerous. As as a matter of fact, it's one of the most dangerous jobs that there is. It's, there are twice as many, um, homicides for taxi drivers than for police. And the driving, well, first of all, you're letting people into your car who you don't know what their state of mind is or, you know, what anything can happen, especially in New York City. And the driving itself is dangerous because there are people and cyclists and cars and buses and horses and everything coming from all directions. So you really have to be, find this middle wavelength between being alert and aggressive, but also calm, which is challenging, um, you know, especially when you're doing it seven, eight, nine or more hours in a day, every day. Um, so it's, it takes, and also it's very repetitive too, even though all of that is going on. Um, so you have to sort of treat it almost like, um, mechanically, um, even though a lot of driving is mental, it's not really physical. That's the, had anything prepared you for this? No, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I kind of learned by doing it. How did you decide to write poems out of your urban experiences? Um, I believe that poems sort of exist in the, in the world or in the atmosphere and that the poet has to have enough facility with language and listen and be sort of attuned to when they're happening and then sort of figure out a way to, to transcribe that experience and make it into a, a three, an object, which is the poem that 
people then the reader can then find a way into it and and recognize it um you know that it's happened and sort of join the immediacy of that experience with the electricity of language so the poetry happens around you in the car as you're driving right. and talking and interacting with people right it doesn't start in your head so much as in the world around correct, you correct yeah and also a lot of it is physical because every one of those poems I experienced in my body. You know, I, I was the one that was sitting there and driving and listening to the crying and the screaming and the abuse and the lifting of the suitcases and all of that. How do the poems in Today in the Taxi compare to your other works? So in in the past, I never really wrote in the first person. Um, I was more interested in the language itself and having poems sort of come into being from the, the volition of the language itself. Um, and if I did address my personal life, I did it very elliptically through a, a, a voice or a, a character. Um, so in this in this book, I wanted to do something different. I wanted to convey the immediacy of the experience and the direct experience, and I wanted it to be much more vulnerable and direct. And And all of these poems are in the first person singular, even though the driver character um, at some moments is a driver and at some moments is sort of like close, more closely connected to the writer. Could you read us one of your poems to give us an idea what they're like? Sure. Which is there, are there any in particular you? <laughs> oh, there are lots of ones that I like. I I like the one about Harlem River Drive. That's okay. one of many that I like. Okay. Harlem River Drive. Tonight in the taxi, it felt like the path of names. The city night is like the breaking of vessels. I counted to four and marked the distances. There seemed to be infinite green lights reflected in the puddles. We live in a time whose motor hums the noises of collapse. Sparks scattered in order to lift the street grid up. The little shifter was set on drive, the pale lighted interior, and three maps sent me across burrows. A monster is made only of nerves. The driver is nothing without the 3,300 pounds of metal slicing the air. Mm. You know, you lived in New York City for a while. Then you moved to the suburbs in the Hudson Valley. Yes. How did driving for Uber shape how you viewed the New York metropolitan area? That's an interesting question because my family has been in New York since you know, the end of the 19th century. And, you know, it's very strange experience driving on the streets or driving past a building where my great grandparents were or where I went to elementary school or, you know, different old addresses and things like that. Um, you know, and in some ways, the city is like a character in the book. Mm-hmm. And the the form of the poems, which are in these little rectangular blocks, are sort of mimic the city blocks. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And it's sort of like, you know, at least since uh, my great grandparents immigrated to New York, it's been a sort of cipher that people put their desires or dreams onto. Um, but the city really doesn't give any more to you than you give to it. It's sort of what you make of it. And that's that's part of why it's become much more uh, predictable and sterile than, you know, maybe in years past because of neoliberal uh, construction and the severe differences between what it costs to exist there now as it had been in, you know, past decades. And the other thing is, you know, people, Uber and Lyft and rideshare companies are not really a taxi service. They're a data collection service. And the product that they're selling is you because they know your name, your address, your credit card number, where you're going, who you're with, travel patterns, and so on and so forth. The taxi part of it is 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 the least of it. Um, and also Uber keeps records of all these trips and all this data that they're selling in, in a cloud. So part of the objective of the book is to restore the human element or the human story to these, rather than being data points, to show that the entire world is actually right there. Um, and to sort of reclaim that space, or rather than being a commodity, um, which is what they would prefer, the driver and the passenger both are sort of given um, the voice of the other. If the experience of living and have a family history in New York City shaped your, your driving time, how did your driving time influence your views about people? Did you learn things about people? Um, that's an interesting question because I, I, I have a lot of social anxiety and I'm not really uh, extroverted in any way. So I would really only speak to people unless I was asked a direct question. I mean, apart from you know, good morning or something like that. Um, but in New York City, you know, you drive people from all over the world. Um, and so it's, like I said, it's the entire world is sort of in this controlled or contained space. And what I realize is um, everybody pretty much is similar or the same. Um and they react to problems differently. Um, but you can tell a lot about people just by how they look, how they, how they, how polite they are, um, their interactions with each other. Are they complete? Do they treat me like I'm invisible? Do they treat me like I'm sort of an extension of the car? or they see me and treat me like a person who has their own problems, um, impulses, you know, and so on. What kind of exchanges between you and passengers made for the best poetry, do you think? 
Um, I, I would say it's the element of surprise. I mean, the main difference between an experienced writer and a beginning writer is really in the amount of surprise that they give. So I found, um, you know, for example, there's a poem where um, a guy gets in and his house in, in Montclair is on fire. So he's frantic. and But I have to observe all the traffic laws and everything and also not be reactive to his to his problems, which are, you know, pretty serious, but nonetheless, like it, it's sort of mundane at the same time. And to try to sort of convey that essential contradiction or juxtaposition is in some ways meta- metaphoric. It's also metabolic because like I said, your body is breathing and your heart is going, um, and it's also metamorphic because you realize that safety or uh, tragedy is somehow relative, even though it's universal. If that makes sense. It calls to mind several of the poems that I read. I'm thinking of peace of mind when you're, when you're rushing a woman to a job, for example. Yeah. Why don't you read that one? Let me find that. Page 62. Oh, okay. Perfect. Peace of mind. Today in the taxi, I got a fare on Main Street and Front Street in Dumbo, going to Madison Square Garden. She got in and said, I'm so late. Today might be the day I get fired. We reasoned with the movement of the potholes, the people and things coming from all directions. The bridge had its iron sounds and brown loneliness the pikes of waves on the East River, and the solid axe of wind. I got her there on time, and she tipped me $20. This is for you, my friend. Kafka interjects that the inner world can only be experienced, not described. So there are three main uh, sort of characters. One is Franz Kafka. One is the jazz musician Charles Mingus. And one is the Lord who has a female voice and these figures are sort of like the ethical GPS that allow the voice of the driver and the passengers. It's sort of like a countervailing force or a, um, a way to have a different voice that would be more cerebral to balance the, the actual immediate or direct experience of the interactions. It's like a commentary on what's happening. Yes. Lord. Yeah. For, or for Mingus. How'd you choose Mingus? Um, that's interesting. I mean, I, I, I was just interested in him at the time. I mean, I still am, but he was very volatile person. And, um, I think that volatility of his character and his sort of need for perfection also was a good counterpoint for some of the uh, need to be aggr- aggressive or uh, yeah, um, 
even to to sort of approach risk and danger in a way that was more um, rational, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. 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 A great rabbi, Margaret Wenig, once wrote a, a sermon about God as an elderly woman. Oh, really? What made you make God a woman in your poems? Well, it's not it's not expected, and. Um, you know, there are moments where she's a, a, a force of affection or even indifference. But I think um, it's sort of like the ethical voice or the ethical or moral voice um, that would put these different events or situations into some kind of perspective. And the other thing was... Um, I mean, I'm not sure, but my mother died uh, of a brain tumor when I was writing the book in June of 2019. And I feel like the Lord's voice is sort of her belief or or guidance in me. Not in terms of what she says, but in terms of the emotion behind it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, in your other books of poetry, your your poetry is in dialogue with jazz. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, is, is this book in dialogue with jazz or other art forms? Um, well, you know, Mingus is sort of like the mm-hmm. experience of that. Um, and it, it comes up in other ways um, as a kind of reflection of quick decision-making um, or, or sort of a spontaneity. It's a combination of spontaneity and also inevitability. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any other poets who influenced you in this volume? Um, not poets so much, but a few prose writers. One was Jersey Kaczynski. Mm-hmm. One was um, Joy Williams. One was, um, I mean, Kafka, of course. And uh, one was uh, David Markson, who was sort of an experimental prose writer that wrote these novels in like little fragments almost, or collage-like pieces of other texts. Tell me more about them and, and, and how they shaped your work. Um. Well, it, prose is almost at, uh, functions with analysis, which is taking things apart, whereas poetry is functions with metaphor, which is bringing unrelated or unconnected things together. So the prose poem, which was developed in France in the middle 19th century, was a way to sort of take the benefits of both of those and combine into one new form. And it's very useful, first of all, in this, in an urban context, which is what it sort of was originally developed to express um, and was kind of a bridge between the romantic period and, and the modern period when cities were really becoming the only cultural expression um, 
And because I deal with juxtapositions and contradictions and sort of competing voices or competing forces, the prose poem was really the perfect um, vehicle to talk about that. And for me, the figuring out the right form is sort of the whole game. It's even more important than the subject matter. And Joy Williams, in particular, wrote this book called 99 Stories of God that I thought was really interesting. And when I read that, I mean, it's fiction, but they're pretty compressed pieces. Um, I, I realized that that would be the most appropriate or the most sort of organic way to handle this material. And then the other formal element is that each poem begins with today in the taxi. I mean, some of them occur at night, but, um, and they all have some kind of initial statement or where I evoke the experience. And then usually there's a turn or a, a, a hinge or some kind of pivot, sometimes called a verso, uh, where these other voices sort of enter and the essential mystery between the, the physicality of the world and the vacuity of the world sort of can have a, a bridge or some kind of connection, which I, I talk about as the porousness of a poem, that the, the porousness of the world that we can't see or can't, Express and the world that's right in front of us have some kind of filtered um, connect connectivity. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This is your first prose poem, right? This well, book. I've written pro in uh, individual prose poems, but not an entire book of mm-hmm. them like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 And your process, I mean, I was fascinated. You described how these poems are born in incidents that you that you experience, right. right? Do you write them down after the incident, or do you accumulate them and write them down? How does it work? Well, I, I happen to rem- have remembered every trip who I picked up, where they were going, what happened, what was said. And then I, 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 then I had the record in the, the electronic record of all of that. In the Uber system. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and then I just sort of would think about them for a long time in my mind, months or sometimes even a, a year or more. 
And then I, when it came down to write, I kind of wrote it all at once, but it was the product of everything that I was just talking about, the reading, the memory, the experience, and so on. Um, and then, of course, I went back and heavily revised everything. I took things out, added things. Um, and, you know, now that it's in a physical format, I've noticed a couple of errors, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm just recalling how I knew you had an earlier interest in journalism, but in many ways, this book of poetry draws on the best of journalism also. Yeah. There's a lot of direct observation. There's a lot of reconstruction. There's very careful and concise writing. There's scene setting and little stories that carry out over the course of the poem. Well, the other thing about journalistic writing that affected me was a kind of coldness to the material or a kind of distance or, you know, objectivity, mm-hmm. um, rather than infuse all of this with my own judgments or scorn or resentments to try to just describe it outside of myself, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, not to draw a reader in from the warmth of the voice or the personality, but the coldness of the actual description of the thing. Yehuda Amakai said the same thing about writing about war once, and I thought it was incredible. Oh, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's very stripped down and clear. I mean, I really would like to make a poem that's transparent enough that you could almost look at it and see reality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's the other point about the the uh, utopian techno utopian cult that we live in now, um, which is almost like a gilded age situation, but much more intense because we are connected to these things 24 hours a day. Um, is that it's really not reality. And part of the autocratic um, program is to sort of erase the boundary between fact and fantasy so that really any statement can be possibly factual, even though everyone knows it's not factual. And it's very dangerous. I mean, it's really one of the most dangerous times. (laughs) I know there have been a lot of dangerous times in history, but it's really one of the most dangerous times because it's so... um, precarious, um, not just because of autocracy, but climate emergency and the fact that so much of our attention um, and focus is contained within these artificial situations, Facebook, Amazon, Google, and so on. Did you feel this going into writing these poems? Or is this something I mean, that came you not really, but when I, you know, the uh, writing of the book um, coincided with the rise of, of Trumpism. And I started to realize that part of the, um, part of the problem is really a failure of imagination or a failure to get, to have a language to talk about this, this situation that we're actually in. Um, and so I really believe that poets, because they're at the, they could be at the spear point of defending against this rather than obeying in advance to, to say that language is actually meaningful and 
important and has to be defended because otherwise, you know, somebody like Putin can say, we're going to denazify Ukraine, even though they have a Jewish president and a Jewish prime minister. The point of that is not to change those facts, but to make it so that words like Holocaust or genocide actually have no meaning, and then they can have permission to do whatever they want. That's a good insight. That's a very good insight. Just to shift slightly, uh, do you have any tips for drivers based on your experiences? (laughs) Um, I would say, first of all, be defensive. If someone cuts you off or does something, you know, poorly or behaves badly, just don't react. (laughs) You know, it's, it's not worth it. And also a lot of people are armed or dangerous or high, or you don't know what there is going on. So it's really not worth the risk. Um, and you know, I would say that, you know, it's important to be aware that there are people and objects, you know, all around. It's almost like you, a video game or something where you, you don't want to hit anything. Um, and, you know, I would say that we think of driving as almost like a, a right as an American or something, but it's actually a, a privilege and a responsibility. So, you know, it's you're actually behind a very, very dangerous <laughs> machine that you're connected to. And it's it's like a major war. I mean, something like 40,000 people a year are killed in car crashes. Right. You know, if that was a war, we would n- notice its significance. But since it's sort of connected to our idea of sort of freedom and fun, it's like worth the risk somehow. <laughs> but it is very dangerous. You know, there's been a recent increase in union organizing, but the law classifies Uber drivers as independent contractors who don't have the right to form a union. What are your thoughts about that? Well, when I first started, there was no organizing at all. And then about three years, I forget what year it was, maybe 2016 or 17, there there was a thing called the Independent Drivers Guild or IDG, which I paid dues to. And it was like, it did serve the function of a union, but we weren't unionized. Mm-hmm. They did win a number of things for us, such as bathrooms at the JFK airport, um, vision care, um, and things like that. So it was it's very important. And, and the other thing is uh, most of the drivers are immigrants um, and are, are just sort of caught in this terrible system that was in some ways – solve some of the problems of the yellow cab medallion system, but then created all kinds of new problems. Um, And one of those problems was an environmental problem because suddenly in a very short amount of time, more than 60,000 additional cars were on the streets of New York 24 hours a day. Whereas there were, by comparison, there are only about 13,000 yellow cabs. So, It's it's not a small it's not a small thing. Did the drivers you worked with talk much about unions? Well, there are meetings, and there's a there's a place. Well, they changed the system numerous times, but there's a place where you sort of have to wait in this queue 
at the airport. Um, and we would talk, you know, um, and exchange, <laughs> you know, professional complaints <laughs> about all this sometimes. <laughs> what were the biggest gripes? Well, I didn't say this before, but I should have. You know, Uber is one of the biggest corporations in the world. It's bigger than Delta or General Motors. And but all the risk and and costs are on the backs of the drivers, such as insurance, gas, tires, damage to the car, cleaning the car. Um, the the Uber actually does nothing. They provide nothing. They just are a because the rideshare drivers are prohibited by law from just picking up people hailing on the street. And so you're sort of, you have to use the apparatus or the app to get the fares, but they, they know that they would have these incentives like drive a certain number of trips and you'd get a bonus of some kind, but they made it, actually impossible to achieve any of them because it's just it's just there's a certain there's a maximum number of trips you can do in any given day and so they would make the threshold just past that so it's almost like a game that you were trying to get these points almost so um you know the the entire thing is exploitative (laughs) It's really, it's, it's, and it's even worse somehow in other countries too. And they've actually banned it in Spain and India, I think, because one of the drivers raped a woman. Mm. So it's not as if the yellow cab industry was equitable either. I mean, those guys, they rent those cars from whoever owns them and they own hundreds of them, these medallions. And they rent them for like a thousand dollars a week or something like that. So, you know, it's, it's just, it's a very difficult problem to solve. Although it could be solved if say Uber paid taxes, which they don't. (laughs) You now work helping people write poetry and academic prose at seansingerpoetry.com. What's that like? Um, well, that's, that's, first of all, I've already made more money doing that than I ever did driving. (laughs) That's good. Um, and it's sort of more in my wheelhouse and I can, I feel that I can use my capacities, you know, in a much more productive way than I was before. Although I have to sort of constantly generate new business myself, you know, it's not like when you're driving, the customers are, they're just right there most of the time. Whereas with this, I sort of have to do it all on my own. But I do like it. Galway Canal once wrote a great poem about a correspondence school instructor writing to his students. And I anticipate a poem from you about SeanSinger.com someday. (laughs) Okay. I don't know that one. (laughs) Any new poetry projects anticipated in the future? Well, I'm not sure. Um, Every week I write a craft essay as part of this email newsletter I have called The Sharpener, which is about thinking through poetry, not just thinking about poetry, but actually using poetry to think. (laughs) Um, 
And so every every Saturday morning, and I've done this since November of 2020, every week I've written this craft essay about some topic related to writing or reading poetry. So I mostly have been focused on that. Maybe could you conclude with one final poem? Sure. Um, Your choice. Okay. Pink gloves. Tonight in the taxi, I drove four women from a bachelorette party, complete with their tiaras and feathers to another bar. Already happy, they pushed the bride to be forward, and she asked me how I thought she looked. I was too taken aback to answer much of anything. She was liquid, prehistoric, and my little body burned. I thought of the Lord throwing handfuls of sequins at the party, as if to say, there is no other life but this one. Thank you very much, Sean. Thank you so much. I'm Rob Snyder, and I've been talking to Sean Singer about his latest book of poetry, Today in the Taxi, published by Tupelo Press for the New Books Network. Thank you.